The children can be dismissed at this time, and let me ask you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7. We'll continue our study in the Gospel according to Mark. We've been working our way through chapter 7, and this morning we will look at chapter 7, verses 31 to 37. a, at least for us, culturally speaking, a bit of a strange story, yet I think as we walk through it, while I'm not certain anyone can understand everything in this story, I think we'll have a good enough understanding of it as we walk away, having looked at the story of Jesus yet again in a Gentile land healing what's most likely a Gentile man as he has battled with the Pharisees and the scribes to demonstrate that what defiles a person is nothing outside of them, but what defiles a person is actually inside of them. He goes into territories that they would have considered defiled, heals people that they would have considered defiled to demonstrate the realities that Jesus did not only come to save Israel, but came to build his church. Mark chapter 7 verses 31 to 37 says, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, He put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray together. Lord, as we approach your word now, we pray that you would help us to understand it. We ask that you would give us the insight that only you can give, the hearing that only you can give, the understanding that only you can give. We recognize, Lord, that anyone can read the Bible. Anyone can dissect a story within the Bible. But only your true disciples, whose hearts you have changed, really understand your Bible. We pray, Lord, for that understanding. That you would teach us not just about what you've done physically to heal a man who was deaf and mute, but what you have done spiritually to heal those who are deaf and mute. Lord, as we walk through the, to us at least, strange details of this passage, fingers in the ears, spitting, touching the tongue, it's almost... gross to us to think about reaching into someone else's mouth and touching their tongue. 
But Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding. Understanding to recognize that you, Jesus, are not repulsed by what we think is gross. That there's nothing more gross than our wicked hearts. But you have reached in and touched those wicked hearts and changed them so that they would be new. Lord, help me to communicate these realities. There's so much here, Lord. Your word is a treasure chest full of glorious valuables. We thank you that you've given us your spirit, who is our teacher. Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would teach us today. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Food pairing is the part science, part art of figuring out which foods pair together well. Food pairing was discovered around the year 2000 or so as a chef recognized somehow that caviar and white chocolate tasted good together. I don't believe it, but that's what he says. He took this experiment and he sent it off to some food scientists who studied this, who study these things, and it was discovered that 80% of the way that we take in food is by smell. And when scientists can discover the, the way that those aromas, those smells overlap, all of a sudden you have food pairings that complement one, one another apparently well, like caviar and white chocolate. I'll take their word for that one, but I'm with them on hamburger and bacon. <laughs> food pairing, it's the way that you... T- ingredients that seem to be strange and random and then you put them together and all of a sudden it actually, not only does it have the individual flavors of the ingredients, but then it takes on this overarching flavor explosion that leaves you with an experience that just makes you sit back in your chair and go, oh wow. Contrasted to food pairing is what some people sometimes do when they go to the soda fountain at the restaurant. There are people that do this, and of course the kind of person that does this is also the kind of person that's bold enough to actually say it tastes good. I don't believe them either. They take their cup and they do the soda roulette, a little bit of each one of the different kinds of sodas. They mix them all together, diet with not diet, orange with Coke, all of those flavors. They mix them all together, and then they say, hmm, this tastes good. I don't buy it. That is an example of just a random mixture of ingredients that really, I don't think, tastes very good together. There's a difference between mixing ingredients together because they complement one another and therefore there is a 
greater reality above those ingredients and above that flavor of the individual ingredients between mixing random flavors together and the reality is you just kind of get a new level of grossness. Two different realities, right? You understand that. I would remind you that as we study the gospel according to Mark, it's just like that. Mark is not going to the soda fountain and just randomly getting different sodas, randomly grabbing stories from the life of Jesus and kind of mixing them together and hoping it sort of tastes good. No, no, no. Mark is a master chef who puts individual ingredients together so that not only do you taste the individual ingredients in the stories themselves, but you end up with this overarching flavor that makes you sit back in your chair when you see it, when you taste it, and go, oh, wow. That's what we have as we approach this story of Jesus healing yet another man of another physical condition. It's a story that has its own ingredients in it, but it's a story that fits within the context of other ingredients surrounding it. And unless we understand all the other ingredients surrounding the story, we don't get the full flavor that Mark intends for us to understand. We can certainly analyze and look at this one story and still be deeply encouraged and deeply enriched, but I'm afraid that the temptation would be for us to walk away and say, okay, Jesus healed somebody else. I get it, Mark. Get to the, get to the new stuff. Give me some new material here. But Mark puts these stories together so that there's a flavor explosion, so that way we understand when we read things like this story, spitting, ear, fingers in the ears, touching someone else's tongue, when we read this story, then we understand, wow, there's something going on here that I need to understand. Something that Mark knew that the disciples did not know, at least in the moment, and something that the Holy Spirit, the divine author, wants the readers to understand quite clearly from this story and the overall context that it falls into. So, I want to look at this in three parts. I will have notes up on the slides, up on the screen, as I always do, but I want to warn you, it's going to be a little bit different than what you're used to. If those notes distract you, then don't even look at them. I don't know that most of you do anyways, but if it's more helpful for you, and, and I think it might be, if it's more helpful for you to just, just listen and take it in, then please feel free to take that approach. So as we unfold this particular story, as we think about finally hearing and clearly speaking, I want to first of all to look at the key ingredients surrounding this story. The key ingredients surrounding this story. If we're going to get the full flavor that Mark intends for us to get from this story and this whole section of his gospel, then we need to see the key ingredients that contribute to this story. I would preach in no other way than 
expositional preaching, which is what we do here. It's often called something like verse-by-verse preaching. But in that form of preaching, it's helpful for us to remember and to be reminded continually that the gospel according to Mark was not meant to sit down and be read in an entire year. It was meant to be read in one sitting. So you move from chapter 1 to chapter 16 in as long as it takes you to read from chapter 1 to chapter 16. And so it's helpful for us if we understand these key ingredients surrounding the story. And to do this, you're going to have to turn, first of all, back to Mark chapter 4. If it's more helpful for you to not turn, then do that as well. It's okay. You're not sinning if you don't flip the pages of your Bible. Or at least that I'm aware of, anyways. We need to see the key ingredients of this story. And the first key ingredient is the, the crash course on the importance of listening that the disciples got from Jesus in Mark chapter 4. You remember this scene? It's the parable of the sower. It's the section of the gospel of Mark where the word listen or hear appears over and over and over and over again, signaling to you that there's something that you need to pay attention to. So they got a crash course on the importance of listening, and the first lesson that they learned was that hearing Jesus goes beyond recognizing audible tones. In other words, Jesus wanted them to understand that hearing him was not the same as hearing him. Which makes you go, huh? Which is exactly Jesus' point. He wants you to go, huh? So that you either walk away and get tired of listening, or that, like the disciples, you hang around and just say, we've got to get this thing figured out. This guy's got something, and we need to know what it is. So they they needed to understand that hearing goes beyond audible tones. Look at verses 9 and then 10 to 12. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you were not reading this gospel and Jesus were speaking these words to you in that context, you'd probably be left scratching your head just like the disciples. Uh, Jesus, everybody here has ears. And everybody hears hearing you say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What exactly do you mean? Well, verses 10 and 12, 10 to 12, begin to unfold that a little bit more. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you, the 12, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Jesus is beginning to explain to them the importance of hearing, and it's the reality that hearing isn't hearing. Hearing, however, is the key to understanding, but there's a spiritual blockage in the ears of natural man. And so this reality that Jesus is unfolding for them, the purpose uh, or the importance of hearing, then continues, jump down to verse 20. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, or present tense, continually hear the word. They, They live a lifestyle of always, every day, hearing the word and accept it. 
and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Not only did they learn that Jesus is, that hearing Jesus goes beyond audible tones, but hearing Jesus also involves persistence. You've got to keep on hearing Jesus. Look at verses 20, 21 to 23. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, that's a present tense. If anyone has ears to hear, let him keep on hearing. Let him persist in hearing. Let him live a lifestyle that demonstrates hearing. And so hearing Jesus involves persistence in hearing Jesus. And then he wanted them to understand that hearing Jesus requires effort, but that effort will be rewarded. Look at verses 24 to 25. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Why, Jesus? Why should we pay attention to what we hear? With the measure you use, with the measure of hearing you use, it will be measured to you. You don't want to hear, you'll get nothing. You want to hear a little bit, you'll get a little bit. You want to hear everything God has to offer, you'll get everything God has to offer. And still more will be added to you, Jesus says. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So hearing Jesus requires effort, and it's an effort that will be rewarded. And then jump down to verse 33. There it says, "With, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. His speaking of the parables, according to Mark, was dependent upon their ability to hear what he had to say. Which means that hearing Jesus requires the ability to do so. If they understood him on this level, then he spoke to this level. Once they started to understand him on this level, then he raised up to this level. As they were able to hear, that is how he spoke to them. And so they got a crash course on the importance of hearing Then, as the story continues to unfold, the the second ingredient that we see comes at the end of chapter 4, and it's the question that the disciples ask. The the disciples ask who Jesus is. Look at chapter 4, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. This is after Jesus calms the storm, after taking a nap in the boat. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. We covered that question and we talked about that question a while, but suffice it to say that that question then dominates the rest of what Mark talks about. Up until another question that we'll go to in just a minute here in chapter 8, when it's not the disciples asking the question, it's Jesus asking the question of the disciples about his identity, and they finally demonstrate that they get it, at least in some degree. 
So the first ingredient is the importance of hearing. The second is the question that the disciples ask, and that question frames what Mark is teaching, what Mark is talking about, why Mark is showing us so many miracles, why Mark has Jesus walking on water, calming storms, healing demoniacs, all of the things that Mark has Jesus doing, shows Jesus doing, contribute and stem from that question, who is Jesus? Because Mark wants his reader to ask that same question. Yeah, who is this guy? And then he wants you to keep reading. And you see, oh, whoa. He's the one that can cast a multitude of demons out of a man with the power of his voice. Completely transform the man's life and change him from a lunatic to an evangelist. Maybe the story of a couple people here today. Mine, at least, maybe. So the the second ingredient is that. And then the third ingredient, you can turn to chapter 6 for this, is that the disciples demonstrate their inability to hear and to understand. The importance of hearing, Jesus says, you got to hear me. You got to hear what I say. And then they say, who is this? And then they continue to demonstrate that they don't really hear him. And they don't really understand him. Look at chapter 6, end of chapter 6, verses 51 to 52. And this is just after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and walks on water. Verses 51 to 52 of chapter 6 says, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't get it. Remind you back from chapter 4, the key to understanding is the ability to hear. You have to hear if you are to understand. Chapter 4 verse 12 said, the reason that Jesus spoke in parables was so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. What are the disciples demonstrating here in in the fact that they don't understand about the loaves and the fact that their hearts are hardened? They're demonstrating the reality that they cannot hear. They can't hear. So it's no coincidence. In just a few moments when we return to Mark 7, that Jesus encounters a man who literally, physically cannot hear. And then he gives that man hearing. Jesus left his disciples sort of hanging at the beginning of chapter 7 with his teaching about what defiles a person. In a sermon, you can, you can bring in the gospel, the good news, that it's, it's not just that there's bad news, that the defilement begins inside of you, but that Jesus Christ came to take on that defilement, your sin, pay the penalty on the cross, rise from the grave, so that you could be forgiven of that defilement and cleansed of that defilement. You can do that in a sermon, but as you read the Gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't do that. Mark leaves you with the tension of asking yourself, well, if the problem's inside of me, what can I do about it? And that's exactly what he wants you to keep asking. 
Because you're meant to read Mark from chapter 1 to chapter 16 to recognize that what you need to really see is the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the victorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that is what makes you clean. They didn't hear. Not only did they not understand about the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, but look at chapter 7, verses 14 to 18. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. You see the link again? Hear me and understand. Why? Because understanding begins first with hearing. But they can't hear him. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 17 says, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? They're they're genuinely struggling to understand what Jesus is saying. They don't get it. Why, in the context of Mark, does someone not understand something? Because they can't hear what he's saying to them. Oh, they hear it, but they don't hear it. Not only do they not understand about the parables, but we're going to skip ahead a little bit, jump over to chapter 8. Verses 14 to 29, and this is our last illustration of the reality that they can't hear. Chapter 8, verses 14 to 29, Jesus has just fed more people, 4,000 people this time. It's not a copycat, it's another miracle, this time in most likely a Gentile land. This time, when there was green grass in the feeding of the 5,000, it's now a desolate place in the feeding of the 4,000, which I think connects you back to Isaiah 35, but we'll get there in a minute. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them. Now, granted, this is right after, in Mark's telling of the story, right after Jesus fed 4,000 people. They had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Which is almost comical. Did you bring the bread? I didn't bring the bread. Did you bring the bread? Peter, I thought, man, you did it again. Jesus says, hey, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herodians. And they stare at him for a minute. Maybe a little drool comes out. Okay, so about the bread. Did you bring the bread? Why? They couldn't hear him. They couldn't hear him. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes Do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? 
they said to him, I don't know how they said this to them, but I would imagine they said to him rather sheepishly. Twelve? And the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven? And he said to them, do you not yet understand? They portray the fact that they don't understand. And they don't understand because they don't hear him. We need these key ingredients so that we can understand what Jesus is about to do to this man who really can't hear him. But there's another final key ingredient as we key ingredient surrounding this story that helps us better understand what Mark wants us to understand from this story. And it's at the end of chapter 8. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 29. The disciples finally understood who Jesus is. They went for a period of time without understanding anything at all about him. They saw it, but they didn't, didn't get it. They'd rather talk about the bread they forgot to bring than the unbelief of the Pharisees and the Herodians. So finally, in chapter 8, verse 29, Peter speaks for the disciples in this glorious display of a recognition of who Jesus is, at least in part. And this is really the hinge point of the Gospel of Mark. Everything has been working up to this confession, and then everything after this confession will then explain what the confession means. That although they were looking for a a political leader, Jesus was not going to be that yet. He'll be that one day when he returns in glory, when he establishes his physical kingdom, he will be that. But before he would be that, he would be the sin bearer. Because they did not recognize that they had a greater problem than a political problem. Rome was nothing compared to the defilement in their own hearts. So chapter 8, verse 29 says, and he asked them, this time Jesus asked the question. Chapter 4, they say, who is this? Now Jesus asked them, who am I? And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? The you there is plural. Who do y'all say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Yes. Yes, he is. Yes, they finally hear. They finally understand, albeit their understanding was only partial. So the key ingredients surrounding this passage, surrounding this story then, are the importance of hearing, the question the disciples ask, the fact that the disciples can't hear him, But then, finally, after our story, the fact that they finally do hear, they finally do understand the identity of Jesus. And that is the context of this story. Those are the key ingredients to understanding this story in the way that we need to understand it. So then, secondly, let's talk about the explanation of the story itself. Go back to chapter 7. Verses 31 to 37, and here we'll walk through this story. And then after we walk through this story, we'll talk about some spiritual lessons that we can draw from this story. 
So what I want to do here is in a really sort of boring way, explain to you the structure of this story. Boring uh, homiletically, preachy. It's not very preachy. First of all, we see the setting of the story. See, I told you, it's not preachy. But it helps you get it. The setting of the story, verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. If you were to turn to the, what you most likely have in the back of your Bible, the map of the time of Jesus' life, it would be a helpful resource for you if you want to get a visual of what this looks like. So I'll try to do this facing you if you were looking at me, the map. Jesus, if the Sea of Galilee is here, Jesus has been here in Tyre. Now he goes up here to Sidon, and then he comes down around here to the region of the Decapolis. Gentile region. It seems as though he's intentionally avoiding Galilee. Because it's too light a thing, the father says to the son, that he would save only Israel. He would be also a light to the nations. So he's conducting his ministry to those nations in the land, Isaiah 35, of Lebanon, as it just so happens. So the setting of the story is he's moved from here to here. He's now in Gentile territory once again. And then as the setting is set, then we see the healing itself, verses 32 to 35. And they brought to him, notice it's just they brought to him. We don't know who the they is. This happens in the Gospel of Mark. You remember back to the paralytic whose friends busted a hole in the roof and lowered him down? We only ever knew about them as a they. They, his friends. That was it. So somebody, they, brought to him, Jesus, a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on them. So some friends are concerned. People are concerned about who Jesus is. He's back in the region of the Decapolis. You remember he healed the man with the demons, legion, who possessed him. That man was a Gentile man living in a Gentile land. And that man, after his conversion, after his salvation, after Jesus transformed his life, wanted to be with Jesus. But Jesus says, no, you go and tell everybody about the mercy of God and all that the Lord has done for you. So then he goes throughout the Decapolis preaching to everyone about what Jesus, the Lord, had done for him. So this land, the Decapolis, is already saturated with the gospel of Jesus Christ because one man obeyed Jesus. They know who he is. They know what he can do. He's back. And some people take their friend who cannot hear and then cannot speak because he cannot hear to Jesus And they beg Jesus, Jesus, please lay your hands on him. Because they know, just like everybody else who's come to Jesus, fallen down before him and begged him, that it's if Jesus touches you, then you'll be healed. And verse 33 says, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Notice what Jesus does. First of all, he takes the man aside from the crowd. Mark is emphasizing here that this was intended to not be a show for everyone to see. He takes him aside from the crowd privately. 
this man, no doubt, had lived a life of terrible public embarrassment. He couldn't hear anything. He couldn't speak enough that anyone could understand what he was saying. Which meant he had never heard the word of God before. He couldn't read because no one could have ever taught him because he couldn't hear them teach him. He couldn't work because he couldn't hear instructions. In those days, with that particular condition, there were, of course, no hearing aids. There was nothing they could do to remedy this problem. And so the man lived surrounded by society but completely and totally isolated. Jesus now takes him away from the crowd to show him something that probably no one else has ever showed him. He matters. He's important. He will get the attention of Jesus. So he takes him away. And then he sticks his fingers in his ears. And after he stuck his fingers in his ears, he spit. Mark doesn't tell us where Jesus spit. Could be on the ground. In just a a few sections here, we'll see Jesus heal a blind man by spitting on his eyes. It could be that Jesus spit on the man himself. It could be that Jesus spit on his own hands before touching the man's tongue. We don't know. We just know that the fingers go in the ears and then spit comes out of the mouth. And then Jesus reaches into the man's mouth and touches his tongue. It's weird to us, but this would not have been weird to them. They thought that spit had life-giving medicinal purposes, and there were even uh, sort of concoctions, recipes that involved the mixture of spit and blood and other things that were supposed remedies. You know, all those weird home remedies that people's great-great-grandmas come up with and, and you just have no idea where that came from, but you do it because great-great-granny said to do it. Kind of like that. But I want you to see something and notice something that while this strikes us as very, very strange, if Jesus were to say to this man, I will heal you, could the man hear him? But if Jesus were instead, in the way that only Jesus could have, I'm sure, gently put his hands inside of this man's fingers, then the man would understand, he's going to open my ears. If Jesus were to spit, the man could see the spit coming out of his mouth, maybe feel it if it went on him. And then Jesus reaches into his mouth and touches his tongue. If Jesus were to tell the man, I'm going to let your tongue loose so that you can speak, would the man hear him? No. But if he were to reach his mouth, his hand into his mouth and touch his tongue, the man would understand, he's going to loose my tongue. Sinclair Ferguson and others have called this sign language. Jesus spoke this man's language. But the challenge was this man had no language. Sign language didn't exist. 
And so Jesus communicates to this man, with this man, in the only way that he could hear. And he didn't even need ears for it. Verse 34 says, And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which if you say that, it's, it's breathy, isn't it? You say Ephatha, and you put your hand in front of your mouth, you feel your breath coming off. Now granted, it just so happens to be the Aramaic word for be opened also. But Jesus is making this healing particularly tactile and particularly visual so that the man understands what's happening here. He looks up to heaven. Why does he look up to heaven? So that the man understands Jesus to be saying, what I'm about to, you, to do for you comes from heaven itself. It's like the psalmist says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So that the man, while he can't hear Jesus, and he can't hear anybody else's explanation, Jesus looks up so that the man knows he's consulting God. He sighs. <sighs> Again, breath comes out. No doubt the man saw the heaving of Jesus' chest as he sighed. And yet this sigh tends to be what happens when Jesus is overwhelmed by the fallenness of humanity. He sighs. He weeps when his friend Lazarus dies. As a sort of an application side note of that, we must never think that although God is sovereign, he is some unfeeling robot. He loves Jesus did this out of compassion and love for this man. And then he says, Ephatha, be opened. And then verse 35, and his ears were opened. And his tongue was released and spoke clearly. Of course he did. Because Jesus touched him. And Jesus commanded that those ears that were stopped up be opened. And that tongue that was chained be loosened. So that the man could then hear. For the first time, it seems, in a very, very long time. Most likely, the man was able to hear at some point, which is why he was able to make some audible noises. But he couldn't speak plainly except for after Jesus opens his tongue, releases his tongue from the bondage of sin and the consequences of the fall. He releases his tongue, and wouldn't you know, the man speaks plainly. Just like that, a physical, tactile healing. And verses 36 to 37 then tell us about the response of everyone around. And Jesus charged them, there they are again, charged them. It's interesting, the them could include the man, but I'm inclined to think that the them maybe doesn't include the man. Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They couldn't keep it in. And they were astonished beyond measure. It's a good phrase there. Their astonishment 
couldn't be contained. Their astonishment was so much so that even though Jesus said, don't you tell anybody about this, it just came out anyway. They were astonished beyond measure saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let me ask you, what does that sound like? He has done all things well. What does that sound like? It sounds a whole lot like the creation account in Genesis, doesn't it? It sounds a whole lot like God saying, let there be and there was, and God saying, it is good. Jesus creates in this man the ability to hear, the ability to speak, and now people look on and say, that's awesome. Everything this guy touches turns to gold. And so they want to tell everybody about it, and you can understand why they would want to tell everyone about it, but they don't yet know enough to explain everything there is to say about Jesus. That's why he tells them, don't tell anybody. Because they didn't understand that the Messiah they were looking for was not just a deliverer physically, but would first of all be a deliverer spiritually. They had a bigger problem than closed ears and unworking tongues. They had a sin problem, a problem that defiled them on the inside. And that was the very problem that needed to be dealt with first. They didn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ until they understood everything that he had come to do for them. This leads us then to the the final thing I want us to consider, the spiritual lessons drawn from the story. We've seen the key ingredients surrounding the story. We've seen the explanation of the story. And now let's think about, finally, some spiritual lessons drawn from the story. In light of the key ingredients, in light of the other flavors around this story and the flavor that this story presents, what is Mark trying to get us to taste here? First of all, the first spiritual lesson is that unless Jesus opens your ears, you won't be able to hear his word. You see, this physical healing was important. It was not just an instrument Jesus used to teach a lesson, but it was something that Jesus used to teach a lesson. This physical healing teaches spiritual lessons. At this point, were the disciples able to hear him yet? No. So he shows them what it's going to take to be able to hear him. Hearing Jesus is granted by Jesus. He wants his disciples to understand, you're not smart enough to hear me. You're not good enough to hear me. You can't take enough notes to hear me. If you're going to hear me, says Jesus, then it's going to be up to me. Unless Jesus opens your ears, you won't be able to hear his word. But I want you to notice that even though the disciples did not hear him, they still walked with him. They didn't quit. They had questions. They were confused. 
But they knew there's something about this guy. There's something about what he's doing. There's something about what he's saying. And they were not like the crowd that was in awe of what he could do miraculously. They were unlike the crowd. The secret of the kingdom of God had been shared with them, but they didn't quite get it yet. They understood there's something spiritually going on. When, when this guy, Jesus, talks, something happens inside of me. And so they kept on going. But you know what else? Not only did they keep sticking around Jesus, he stuck around them. He didn't give up on them. He didn't say, you bunch of deaf, mute disciples, I'm done with you. He, just giving them, he kept giving them more opportunities to hear, more opportunities to learn, more opportunities to grow until finally one day, most especially after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the descending of the Holy Spirit, they got it. They got it in a way that has forever changed the world. Unless Jesus opens your ears, you won't be able to hear his word. I think if you're a Christian, I think you know what this is like. You've heard this before, most of you at least. I grew up thinking that I was saved. I don't know how many times I prayed the prayer of salvation, but I was not saved. To me, Jesus was a get-out-of-hell-free card. Now, I would have never said that. But now that I can hear him, that's the reality of what I lived like. Until one day when God regenerated my heart and gave me eyes to see and ears to hear, one of the most vivid things that happened to me, and I think probably happened to you too, is that I understood the Bible in a way I had never understood it before. I would pick it up and I would read it and I would devour it. I would lay awake at night just reading and reading and reading, even in the Old Testament, in the obscure passages, because I finally got it. I mean, there were plenty of things I didn't get, but it, I finally, it finally made sense. I finally heard it in a way that I would never heard it before. And when I picked up the Gospels, what used to be just a bunch of confusing stories about a guy that I, I'm, I believe died on the cross for my sins, it didn't make sense to me until I was saved. And all of a sudden, I, I thought, whoa, whoa, Jesus is awesome. He's not, a, he's not, a, he's not my co-pilot He's not an addition onto my life that helps me to get what I want, which is the way I treated him before. He is my life. You know what this is like if you're a Christian. Unless Jesus opens your ears, you won't be able to hear. So let me ask you, has Jesus opened your ears? By implication, if he has not opened your ears and he's the only one who can open your ears, then it stands to reason that what you need to do is go to him and ask him to open your ears. Lord, let me hear your voice in your gospel. Let me understand who you are. Lord, I'm just like these nitwit disciples. Here's a moment of confession. That was what I thought a lot as I studied this passage this week. 
fingers in the ears, spitting on people, touching their tongues. Lord, I don't get it. So if you have not been able to hear Jesus, ask him to let you hear him. Second implication for us as evangelists. Why do people not listen to the gospel of Jesus? Because they can't. They can't hear it. So what is our responsibility? Not just to tell it, we certainly tell it, but then we beg God in constant, continual prayer, God, open their ears, because if you don't open their ears, they're not going to get it. What does the world need? What does our community need? A lot of things, right? Social reform, the understanding that if you decriminalize drugs, it's going to be bad. The understanding that if you fail to recognize basic biological principles, it's going to be bad. We certainly need that, but they don't get that if they can't hear the gospel of Jesus. If their heart has not been transformed by hearing the gospel, do whatever social reforms, do whatever political agenda possible, it won't save a soul. Who knows that? The church knows that. We're the only people that know that. So if the church whines and bickers about politics and all of those things, now there is a right place, so don't hear me, don't misunderstand me, hear me. But if the church isn't saying the gospel as its loudest message, how are they going to hear? And if the church isn't constantly begging God, God, open their ears, let them hear, then how are they going to hear? Because unless Jesus opens your ears, you won't be able to hear his word. But the good news, my friends, is Jesus opens ears. Let me ask you, and I need to keep moving. Is there anybody right now that you're praying that God would open their ears? If there's not, there should be. I don't say that to guilt you. But if there's conviction, that's the Holy Spirit. So why don't you maybe even in the margin of your Bible, if you do that kind of thing, or the back notes or somewhere, write down a list of people that you need God to open their ears. And write names on that. And then just start praying, God, open so-and-so's ears. Because I have talked till I'm blue in the face, and it turns out I can't save anybody. Surprise, surprise. So unless Jesus opens your ears, you won't be able to hear his word. And then secondly, and this is the last one, so your bathroom break's coming soon. Unless you are able to hear the word of God, you won't be able to speak clearly. Unless you are able to hear the word of God, you won't be able to speak clearly. Why couldn't this man speak clearly? Because he couldn't hear the way that words were supposed to be formed. Why does Jesus tell them, don't tell anybody about this? Because all they saw was the miraculous power of Jesus. They didn't yet understand the sacrificing atonement of Jesus. That's why Jesus tells people, don't tell anybody. Because the the popularity would make it so hard for him to move around. But also because Jesus didn't come to be popular as a healer. Jesus came to be the sin bearer who also heals. As a picture of what will happen one day when he returns and establishes his kingdom. 
So unless you are able to hear the word of God, you won't be able to speak clearly. A full recognition of the gospel involves not only what Jesus can and will do, ask him to heal people. Not only what Jesus can and will do, but what Jesus already has done to pay for their sins. The good news is good because it meets the deepest need we have. Cancer is a serious problem. Deafness is a serious problem. Muteness is a serious problem. But it's not worse than sin. The sin bearer demonstrates his power so that when he's on the cross and when he rises from the grave, they would look to him and say, he really does do all things well. He's my savior. So unless you are able to hear the word of God, you won't be able to speak clearly. Isaiah 35 is a quite clear cross-reference to this particular passage. Uh, You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. I want to close with this passage here. There are, in the Greek Bible, Greek Old Testament, Greek New Testament, there are only two places where this word for the man's inability to speak is used. In Mark chapter 7 and in Isaiah 35. Does the Holy Spirit make accidents? Certainly he knew there were going to be two places in the Bible where that word was used. Mark chapter 7 and Isaiah 35. This speaks of the future millennial kingdom of the Lord's reign, but the blessing of being in Christ is that the fulfillment has already begun. Listen to it again. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. Now where was Jesus in the wilderness? in the dry land. And he's going to be there again next week when we see him feed 4,000 people. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon, which was where Jesus was when he healed the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And they did. They saw the glory of the Lord with human skin, with human vocal cords that produced a human voice, with human hands that went into human ears, with human spit. The glory of the Lord is visible in Jesus Christ alone. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble needs. In other words, understand who Jesus is and be strong. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Spiritual salvation, one day in the future, physical salvation. God will come and will save you and will deliver you into his final kingdom. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. What just happened in Mark 7? They were unstopped, same Greek word. 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, there's our word, sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert, and burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes." demonstrating to us that Jesus has begun something that will then finally culminate when he returns in glory. Why should we fear not? Because he's done something and you've got something to look forward to. And a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. You won't have to worry about anything like that anymore. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Who will be there? Nothing to hurt you, only the redeemed. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sorrow and sighing, gone. Remember what Jesus did just before he healed the man? He sighed. He sighed because of the fallenness of humanity. He sighed because he hates sin just as much as we do. He sighed, but he will one day never sigh again. Just like you will one day never sigh again. Because Jesus will take away our sorrow and our sighing because he has paid for it all in his death and resurrection. We need Jesus to open our ears and loose our tongue so that as the song, the hymn says, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumph of his grace. Let's pray together. What glory lies in your word, O Lord? What glory. Lord, I pray that your servant will have been able to unfold that glory at least in some way, but most especially I pray that your spirit would do that very thing. Lord, bless the seed of the word that has been sown in our hearts so that you would give us understanding in a way that I can't, so that you would help us to hear in a way that we never could unless it were granted by you. Lord, open the ears of our community so that they would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Open the ears of a lost world so that they would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us whose ears you have opened, open our mouths and help us to speak clearly the truths about who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.